Hello everybody. This is the ninth and penultimate sermon in our series looking at Revelation. This week we're looking at Revelation 19 verse 11 through to 21 verse 8. The hope unveiled this week is that after victory, heaven comes to earth. In sport, after victory comes celebration. For the fans, this is the enjoyable bit after the nerve-wracking tension of the match. I've watched my football team win a cup final at Wembley. I remember very little of the game, but I can vividly recall the waving of flags, the singing of songs and the hugging of random strangers. Those scenes continued all the way home. But it's not just the fans that celebrate, the players do as well. After all, it's their achievement. In football, rugby and cricket, teams lift the trophy and then parade it in front of their supporters, dancing with delight. However, if the sporting success is particularly significant, maybe a World Cup win or Olympic medal, the Queen gets involved. The victors are invited to the palace and are honoured with the royal presence. In sport, champions reign. Without the celebration, the victory would seem a little hollow. It's what some football clubs are discovering currently as parades are cancelled and crowds are muted by the lockdown restrictions. The end of Revelation has no such worries. After the victory over evil, the celebrations begin. God's people come together in praise. Jesus, the main player, joins in with them. But best of all, they get to enjoy God's royal presence as heaven comes to earth. A few weeks ago, I was asked a difficult question by one of the young people at our teen cafe. It went like this. If Jesus was the king of the Jews... If he fulfilled hundreds of years of Jewish prophecy and performed miraculous signs right in front of their eyes, why did they reject him? We encourage questions at Teens Cafe, and this was a particularly good one. I wonder how you would have answered it. There were lots of things I could have said, but ultimately I went with this. Jesus was rejected as Messiah because he did not lead a violent revolution against Rome. As an oppressed people, the Jews were desperate for victory over the empire and its army. But Jesus knew that this focus was missing the proper target. The true enemy that God's people faced was the dark power that stood behind Rome. The true enemy was evil, acutely personified in the devil. And this enemy could not be defeated by violence, as that was evil's own weapon of choice. No, this enemy could only be defeated by sacrificial love. Our passage today is the second of three scenes at the end of Revelation that wrap up all the major themes within the letter. In the first of these, which we read last week, we saw the defeat of Rome and all other anti-Christian regimes on earth. This time, 
we see the defeat and destruction of the evil powers that stand behind them. God systematically removes them so his presence can come to earth. These chapters detail then the great and final victory that all God's people have longed for. If you have been following the letter, you will know that there are three things that need to be dealt with. First, there are the two beasts of chapter 13, or the beast and false prophet as they reappear in chapter 16. Second, there is the devil itself. Third, there are the human beings who have turned to evil ways. They damage God's world and his people with a selfish lack of care. And though they've been called time and time again by God, they have stubbornly chosen against him. This scene tells of the return of Christ three times. Each account comes from a different angle, dealing with these three forms of evil one at a time. Once each form has been defeated, heaven can come to earth and the celebrations begin. We're going to take each account in turn and see how God's victory is won. The first element of God's victory that we see is the destruction of the beast and false prophet, which comes in verses 11 to 21 of chapter 19. Let us remember what these symbols represent. The beast is the imperial system of empire that used violence to get people to worship the devil. In the first century, Christians were pressurised into worshipping the emperor. If they refused, they could be imprisoned, tortured or killed. The second beast, or false prophet, was the propaganda machine of the empire that through lies, conceit and economic blackmail also tried to get people to worship that which was not God. In the first century, Christians faced extra taxes and were refused entry to the markets until they bowed the knee to the emperor. So the beast and the false prophet are symbolic of all monstrous regimes down through the ages with their fake news and slippery enticements. They are all the schemes evil uses to seduce God's people into idolatry and destructive action. Let us also remember the prophecy of chapter 16. When the sixth bowl of God's wrath was poured out, these beasts deluded human beings into defying God, even standing against Christ when he returned. That passage described this act of ultimate rejection in terms of a battle. Human beings take God on at Armageddon. Here in these verses, we finally see that battle take place. We already know from chapter 16 that this battle is not going to go well for hard-hearted humans and the beasts that deluded them. In verse 11 of chapter 19, Jesus leaves heaven and returns to earth. At this second coming, he does not arrive as a lamb, but as a conquering king. In many ways, he looks like the warrior messiah that the first century Jews expected. 
He's called faithful and true. His eyes blaze with fire. He has a sharp sword to make war. The name written on his thigh is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the Messiah foreseen in Psalm 2.9 who will rule with an iron scepter. This is the anointed one of Isaiah 63 who will tread the winepress of God's wrath. This is a fearsome figure before whom all will bow. But amongst all this battle imagery, there is a great subversion. Do you remember back in chapter 10 when John was given a vision of seven thunders, but he was not allowed to share it with his readers? It was a sign that human beings will not understand everything about the way God works in this age. In the context of chapter 10, it was teaching us that we will never fully grasp how God will turn our human suffering for the good of his purposes. Well, here in chapter 19, we have something similar. In verse 12, the returning Christ has a name, but no one knows it but himself. It is again a sign that we cannot fully understand him this side of eternity. In other words, if we mark him down just as a violent warrior like the first century Jews did, we're going to get him wrong. All the way through Revelation, Christ has been seen to conquer through his own sacrifice. The Lamb wins by being slain. Love is the tactic of the champion, not violence. This vision of his second coming utterly confirms this. First, John sees that Jesus has blood on his robe before the battle even starts. That is because it's his own. He won this battle by previously giving up his life on the cross. Second, the sword is not in his hand. It comes out of his mouth. He will judge the nations not with brutality, but with words of truth and justice. The sword is the good news of the gospel, as foreseen in Isaiah 11, 4. The way it cuts depends on how you responded to the message of God's grace when you had the chance. Third, the angel in verses 17 to 18 announces the victory before the battle even begins. Again, this is because it is won by what Jesus has already achieved in his life, death and resurrection. Then when the final battle does get underway, it's over in an instant. There are no graphic descriptions of blood and gore. It simply says the two beasts gathered with their misled people, but Christ defeated them. The beasts are thrown into a fiery lake of burning sulphur, the image of total destruction for the wicked taken from the end of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18. What this imagery means is that when Christ returns, he will incinerate evil like trash in a rubbish dump. That is so it cannot damage his people or defile his world no more. There will be no compromise. All those who allowed themselves to be deluded by evil will go into the fire too. They will be no more. This is God cleaning up his world. 
Creation itself benefits from evil's removal as symbolized by the hungry birds eating on the flesh of the lost. So what this scene promises us is the total defeat of all evil schemes on the day Christ returns. But it is done in a way that completely subverts violence with love. With that truth now satisfactorily told, Revelation now backs up and tells the story of Armageddon again. But this time from a different angle. We know this must be the case because at the end of these verses, the followers of evil are again thrown into the burning sulphur and human beings cannot get incinerated twice. This time the battle is told in a way that focuses on the devil. The devil is the one who was behind the schemes of the two beasts. When Christ returns, the devil will be need to be defeated and destroyed too, so God's presence can come to earth. Now, it would be remiss of me not to point out that different Bible scholars interpret Revelation 21 to 10 in very different ways. Ultimately, a lot of what we have here is still a mystery. We cannot understand fully from these few pictures how God will finally remove all evil from his world. This is well above our pay grade as human beings. God is God and we are not and it will remain that way. But we are given enough here to believe what is important. I'm going to interpret these verses in the way that makes most sense to me but more importantly, in the way that does justice to how we have read the rest of the letter. As we have done throughout this series, we will let scripture interpret itself. When we are stuck, we will look for clues within the Bible rather than outside of it to help us. Up to this point, we have read Revelation as apocalyptic metaphor as that is what John told us it was at the beginning. Nowhere have we read anything literally, so we're not going to start suddenly doing it now. For example, we're not going to take a thousand years, which is an obviously large round number, to be anything other than a symbol for a very long period of time. With that all clarified, we can now look at the second part of the scene. It begins with the dragon, also referred to as the serpent from the Garden of Eden, or the devil, or Satan. This is the source of evil throughout the Bible. This dragon is bound up and thrown down into the abyss for a thousand years, and we're specifically told in verse 3 that this happens so that he cannot deceive the nations. Now remember that these three scenes at the end of Revelation are a summary and completion of all that has happened previously in the letter. In chapter 12, we read of the dragon being hurled down out of heaven. We interpreted this as a picture of the spiritual victory won at the cross and resurrection of Jesus. From that moment on, Satan could not get anywhere near the Messiah, neither could he take God's place in the throne room. In other words, he's already lost the war. However, all was not quite yet complete. 
once thrown down to earth, in chapter 12, the dragon chased God's people for an incomplete amount of time, three and a half years, or half of the perfect seven, symbolising that the dragon fails. What we now have in the first six verses of chapter 20 is a repeat of that story, a reinterpretation of the same time period. Only the incomplete three and a half years have now become a very long 1,000 years. The other thing that would be helpful for us to remember at this point is the teaching of Jesus. The only other time in the Bible that we read of Satan being bound up is in the Gospel. After delivering people from demons, Jesus announces that he has bound up the strong man of evil so that he can rob his house. This story is so important. All three synoptic gospels record it in Matthew 12, Mark 3 and Luke 11. As this is the only other reference to the binding of Satan and comes from the mouth of Jesus himself, it must be our number one guide on how to read this passage. The dragon was bound and thrown down by Jesus when he came to earth, lived, died and rose again. That did not mean that Satan could not attack because he still tempted Jesus in the desert, but he could not win Jesus over or hold back the power of Jesus to drive out evil spirits. What that means is that the thousand years of this passage began when Jesus came the first time and they will finish when he comes the second. It is a long period of time. But as the corresponding three and a half years of chapter 12 remind us, evil's attacks will remain incomplete throughout it. However, in the years since Christ ascended into heaven, God's people have died. In the first century, many of those died through persecution, but millions have died since from natural causes. One of the great worries of the first century church was that because these believers had died before Christ's return, they would miss out on their place in his kingdom. This was a widespread fear. In 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, we find Paul tackling the same issue there. What we have in verses 4 to 5 of chapter 20, then, is another reassurance for these worries. Believers who die in the time between Christ's first and second coming are to be found reigning in glory. They are in heaven with the ascended Jesus himself, waiting for the completion of the thousand years. Our loved ones who have gone before us in the faith are there now, waiting for Christ's return as they will come with him. They are not lost. They are at rest. And one day we will join them again. Sadly, the same cannot be said for the unrepentant. Verse 5 tells us that they die and live an unconscious non-existence for the rest of the period until Christ returns. It's worth us noticing the comment that the devil is held back so that he cannot deceive the nations. How long will this be for? 
When will Christ return? What is God waiting for? In 2 Peter 3.9 we read this. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. In other words, Christ is waiting for the very last person who will believe to do so. That helps to make sense of our current passage. Before he ascended into heaven, Jesus instructed his disciples to preach the gospel to all nations. Christ will only return when that process is complete. Satan has been bound so that he cannot interfere with that mission to the world. What this means is that when Christ returns, the light of the gospel will have shone everywhere. There will be no excuse for ignorance any longer. When Christ comes, no one will be able to make the excuse that they have not heard or that Satan deceived them. Those who do not hold the faith will have rejected Christ out of their own choice. That is very important to remember as we read the verses that follow. I know this is complicated. And as it relates to our eternal destiny, it worries us. So let me just recap. This passage tells us that Christ bound Satan when he came to earth the first time. We currently live in a long period of time when the gospel is to go out to the world, symbolised in this vision by the round number of a thousand years. If we as Christians die before Christ's return, we enter the heavenly court to rest in God's presence until that day comes. Just as Christ himself promised paradise to the criminal that hung on the cross. Now we have that background, we finally get to the second viewing of Armageddon, the events of the great day of the Lord. Satan is allowed out of the abyss for a short time, just long enough to gather all those who had followed him onto the battlefield. In verse 8, John references Gog and Magog from the Old Testament for this. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, Gog and Magog symbolised all the enemies of God's people and their leaders. They came together against Israel but were defeated. Importantly, that victory was followed in chapters 40 to 43 by God's personal presence coming down to the temple. We're about to see the same after this victory as well. As with the two beasts, the end comes quickly. When Christ returns, the dragon is thrown into the same fiery lake as the beasts and its followers are also devoured. Earlier in this series, we described the cross and resurrection like the winning punch from a boxer that sends his opponent reeling. Satan is now flailing out with drunken blows as he heads for the canvas. On the final day, Satan stirs all his remaining strength to stumble to his feet one final time, but his head is spinning and his strength is gone. The final blow knocks him out completely. That'll be it. Lights out. 
The devil is destroyed, as are all its followers, never to damage God's people or bring evil into the world no more. So the beast and false prophet have been defeated and removed from the earth. The devil has been defeated and removed. That just leaves those who have followed evil and rejected Christ. This third telling of Christ's return is the most human and the most sobering. In verse 11 to 15, we get another picture of Judgment Day. We've already seen this element twice in the letter before. In the opening of the scroll in chapters 6 and 7, God's people were sealed so they could pass through the final judgment. In chapter 14, we're told of two harvests, one for the righteous and one for the unrepentant. Now we see the great judgment one final time. All those who have died throughout human history before Christ's return are raised and judged. These are those who have rested in heaven and those who have lived an unconscious non-existence in the grave. The books are opened. One book details all the events of their history. The other is the book of life. The first book pronounces that we are all guilty. No one is righteous. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The second book has the names of all those who have trusted in Jesus and so receive his forgiveness. On that final day, the books are cross-checked. If you have placed your trust in Jesus and have been covered by his righteousness, you are allowed to live. If you have not, you are thrown into the fire, never to return. At the end of this process, all, the, all of all the names, the grave is also thrown into the fire because death will be no more. These are terrible scenes. They upset us as we think of our loved ones who do not yet know Jesus. I don't enjoy preaching on them, but we cannot deny them. They must be allowed to spur us on to share the gospel as widely as we can, trusting that God is far more gracious than we are, and knowing that even a dying criminal entered the book of life with the confession of his dying breath. Now the victory is truly complete. The final whistle in the cup final of the world has blown. The final bell in the boxing match of good versus evil has rung. Christ has returned as the victorious Messiah and has conquered through love. The battle was won at the cross and resurrection, but now the war and its mopping up operations is complete as well. If Easter Sunday was D-Day, Christ's return is V-E Day. All struggle is now over. The satanic structures and schemes are gone. The devil is gone. The followers of evil have gone. They have died the second death. God's world has now been purged and that means he can now come to it. After victory comes the glorious celebrations. Heaven and earth join together and creation itself is fully restored. The church, the bride of Christ, weds the lamb and they dwell together. 
All the people who rested in heaven and all the faithful still alive on earth when Jesus returned joined together in their glorious resurrection bodies that will never know death or mourning or crying or pain no more. Everything is made new. And as all now have permanent access to God, the source of life, this new age will last for eternity. This is the glorious Christian hope. Not a disembodied heaven where we float around on clouds all day, but a restored creation with all God's people enjoying its beauty in his presence forever. It sounds perfect. That is because it is. This is heaven on earth. We will have much more to say on that in our final sermon next week. But now we must finish with a summary of the good news in this passage. Christians know what they're heading for. The full kingdom of God. That is the destiny of our life. For Christ has and will defeat evil. This was the hope strong enough to hold the first century church through severe persecution It is strong enough today to see us through this coronavirus crisis. This passage contains the best of good news, but also the most sober warning. We must allow it to inspire us to keep going in our faith and to never give up offering the gospel to those who do not yet believe. The hope unveiled this time in Revelation is that after victory, heaven comes to earth.